This episode is sponsored by Code Health. Code connects healthcare providers to the largest community of medical coding professionals in the country with over 4,600 domestic certified coders. As a single stop for all coding needs, Code's on-demand model has solved for daily staffing challenges and coding inefficiencies by allowing providers to access the right coder at the right time while gaining insights to better manage their coding operations. To learn more about Code, visit CodeHealth.com, that's K-O-D-E Health.com, or email Code directly at partnerships at CodeHealth.com. Welcome to Voices in Healthcare Finance. I'm Erica Grotto. Today on the podcast, we'll be exploring what's new and what's next. Nick Hutt brings us an interview with Spencer Ehrman of Connecticut's Hartford HealthCare about how health systems should prepare for new regulations regarding prescription of controlled substances. But first, Rich Daly talks with Chad Mulvaney, HFMA's Director of Perspectives and Analysis, about innovative partnerships. We'll have that interview right after this. Imagine a frictionless patient experience that strengthens relationships with meaningful human interactions and uses technology to increase efficiency and enhance convenience. Making it real is the challenge. Join us at the HFMA Revenue Cycle Conference in Austin this spring to learn how best-in-class organizations are redefining roles and workflows to integrate game-changing technologies. Learn more at hfma.org rcc. This is Rich Daly, Senior Writer and Editor for HFMA. Joining me today on the Voices in Healthcare Finance podcast is Chad Mulvaney, Senior Director of HFMA. He will recap some of the innovative healthcare relationships that emerged over the past year and give us an idea of what coming impacts existing providers and payers might expect from them. Thanks for joining us today on the podcast, Chad. We saw a, uh, a lot of activity last year that brought together organizations either through M&A, joint ventures, or partnership arrangements, all with disparate combinations to improve outcomes, the consumer experience of care, uh, or to reduce the total cost of care. Are there a couple of transactions that didn't involve health systems that you're watching? You know, Rich, obviously there was a lot of activity last year that caught the press's attention. You know, we saw tech companies like Amazon, Google, and Apple make moves in the healthcare space. We saw purchasers like the the JP Morgan, Amazon Berkshire partnership that could certainly be impactful. And then we saw plans with delivery assets, specifically Aetna, CVS, and the Humana Kindred Curio mergers that really, to me, I think are going to be the most impactful, and maybe, or at least the ones that I think in the near term have the potential to be most impactful. And maybe before I break down kind of why I think the, the CVS Aetna deal and the Humana Kindred deal have the greatest impact, maybe I'll just sort of address tech companies and purchasers. You know, while I think longer term, Amazon, Google, and Apple could be quite disruptive, to a certain extent, they're still really in a a storming and forming stage. And they're making smaller bets, at least what for them are smaller bets. So while we can generically say about these companies that, you know, they will at some point be disruptive and in response, you need to improve the customer experience of care. It's not 100% apparent to me what this is going to look like in the long run. We know that Amazon's doing something with the healthcare supply chain. We know they're doing something around the edges of disease management, but how they scale that and how that interacts with the rest of the system. Same thing with Google. We know they're making bets on with analytics through Verily with 
uh, I believe, Oscar. But what that looks like, we don't know yet. And then Apple's really trying to own the, the personal health record space, trying to aggregate things. But how that plays out, we're still not sure. With JP and Berkshire and Amazon, you know, obviously the, the management team led by a tool that they've put together is incredibly talented. But at the end of the day, at least immediately, they're only playing with about 1 million employee lives that are peanut buttered across the country. And so at a market level, while this could vary, certainly could be incredibly disruptive very shortly in Seattle, in D.C. once Amazon's HQ2 gets stood up, Manhattan and Omaha. I'm not sure how this scales beyond those markets unless they get others to join. And also for this to be impactful, you would need each of these companies to really change its health insurance benefit design in ways that we haven't to date seen employers, especially those whose business models are predicated on attracting and retaining top shelf talent eager to do. So when you start to think about what's impactful to me, it's health plans, sort of the financing arrangement, acquiring entities that can provide conduits to deliver care differently are the ones to me that could be most disruptive in the next 12 to 24 months. I see. And along those lines, I wonder if you could spell out a little bit for us what particular opportunities and challenges these new transactions pose to hospitals, physicians, and health plans. Because CVS and Aetna and Humana Kindred have, to me, at least the most potential for near-term impact, I'll maybe take each of these in turn. You know, for me, CVS and Aetna is one of the more likely disruptors of the status quo in healthcare financing and delivery. When you think about CVS, they have 10,000 locations, 70% of the population lives within three miles of a Minute Clinic. Minute Clinic has 50% retail share of the marketplace. So if you couple that with Aetna's members, the, the potential there is really significant, particularly as you think about hospital volume. And I kind of sort of think of this as a high-low strategy in the sense that for the polychronic, CVS and Aetna could use the access and availability of its minute clinics to really start to put in care models to help manage probably initially Aetna's Medicare Advantage plan members that are polychronic high cost, particularly leveraging the pharmacists to reduce ambulatory sensitive ED visits and admissions. So just as a really simple example, a diabetic patient who is an Aetna member comes to CVS to fill a prescription. The pharmacist can also remind the customer that they're due for an A1C test. And that test could be performed in the minute clinic. And so doing this would, you know, help improve Aetna's uh, Medicare Advantage plan's uh, star scores, which would increase their bonus dollars. And it could also potentially, if you could increase the customer service value, help the plan steal market share from competitors at low cost. You start to take this out even further if they could actually put in care models to manage the air quotes 5% that drive 50% of the spending. There could be significant potential to reduce unnecessary ED visits, reduce unnecessary admissions, and really start to wring unnecessary utilization out of the system. And so certainly you would imagine that would start with Aetna's Medicare Advantage population. However, if they develop a capability of doing this, you could see them partnering with Medicare Shared Savings Programs, ACOs. They might even want to spin up one of their own, similar to what Optum has done in a number of markets. And you could also see them selling this as a service similar to Optum to other Medicare Advantage plans in their market. At the same time, kind of on the, on the higher end of the spectrum, if Aetna and CVS can deliver services in a cost-effective, consumer-friendly manner, 
So for example, open scheduling with after hours access, minimal encounter friction, and deployment of an effective telehealth program, which it's, it's currently developing, it could certainly help to redirect its commercial patients, definitely those that are covered by Aetna and certainly potentially other purchasers, to preferred partners when the patient needs sort of a higher level of care that could be provided in a minute clinic. And so you could see pretty easily how this might also start to disrupt referral patterns within markets for patients that use the Minute Clinic. And certainly we know that a large percentage of, of, of the population, particularly millennials, are currently, air quotes, undocked. So they don't have a regular source of primary care and look to these clinics. You know, today, what CVS can do through the Minute Clinic is pretty limited. I tend to think of it as flu shots or stomach virus in the middle of the night. However, we have heard through different venues, particularly Capitol Hill testimony during the merger, they are really looking to expand the complexity of the primary care services that they're going to deliver through this model and are actually later this year in Houston going to open their first sort of pilot store of what a, a, a minute clinic that could provide more complex services will look like. We're also seeing them on the back end develop some really unique capabilities to execute this strategy. So they've gone out and they've hired the CMO of Iora Health, which is a, a fairly complex population health management primary care-driven company, to serve as, as the CMO of Minute Clinic. We've seen them partner with a company called Bowie Health to develop an artificial intelligence platform that will help sort of decision tree where to refer Aetna patients. And certainly, you know, if a Minute Clinic won't suit, then what's going to be the appropriate partner? And then from a technology standpoint, we've seen pilots of Minute Clinic video visits available in nine states in a partnership with Teladoc. So they really are building out the capabilities to, to execute on this strategy. You know, the Humana Kindred transaction is a little different, but no less threatening to hospitals and health systems. If you think about what the combined organization brings, you've got 65% of Humana's Medicare Advantage members are covered by or in a market where Kindred has home care assets located in about 40 states. Between the two of them, they have 2,600 physicians, 55 physician practices, 40,000 home caregivers. And so when you hear Humana's CEO or their CFO speak in a public forum about the, the relationship, it's really all about providing care at the home. And so they're going to get to a point where when a Humana Medicare Advantage member needs to be admitted to a hospital for lower acuity conditions, while these are typically not profitable, they certainly do have a positive contribution margin, it's very likely that they will try to do this as a hospital-at-home admission. And so what they'll need to do is put together a network to sort of make sure that the patient can be treated virtually and also deliver care in home and develop strategies for how you end up making sure the referral occurs to the home and instead of the hospital. One of the interesting things to me about Humana is they have historically been incredibly progressive with primary care physicians and some of their value-based arrangements. And so certainly you can see that is a capability that they can weave into this as well that will allow them to execute. So if they're successful, what this looks like, if you think about it, and kind of using the experience from Presbyterian Health System in New Mexico, which has run a hospital-at-home model, the, the seven or so MSDRGs that they have traditionally focused on, if you look at national Medicare inpatient admissions, it accounts for about 6% of all discharges. And in terms of the financial impact, those discharges account for about 2.5% of the Medicare allowable. You know, again, while these aren't historically profitable cases, if you're in a market that where Humana has a large share of the Medicare Advantage population and MA has a, is prevalent compared to fee-for-service, 
I think you will see the potential for significant volume shift and volume loss if you're not prepared to address this. Well, those will be important issues uh, clearly to keep an eye on. Uh, Next, I wanted to check with you on the issue of integrating different organizations, which is notoriously challenging. What obstacles will these new organizations have to overcome uh, if they're actually going to be successful? Rich, that's a that's a great question. You know, I think you've really sort of hit the crux of it because in a lot of times in the press, people focus on the puppy, but not how difficult the puppy is going to be to train and bring to heel. You know, in the CBS Aetna deal, there to me are significant challenges to executing both strategies, sort of the, the chronic care strategy and the commercial focus strategy which include integrating the two organizations and for the chronic care population, actually developing the care models and managing the relationships with preferred providers in the market. And it's not just one or two markets where they're going to have to do this. They're going to have to figure this out nationwide. And my guess is they'll probably take an in 20 rule approach as to how they sort of roll this out. They're also going to have to grow and manage their complement of primary care providers because currently what they have in terms of nurse practitioners probably isn't going to be sufficient to bring this to scale. And then kind of at a more granular level, particularly as you think about managing someone who is polychronic and reducing their their need for emergency room use or inpatient admissions, is how will Aetna integrate its care team at CVS with their members' physicians' operations? And how can they position this in a way so that the primary care physicians that are part of their network but not employed by Aetna, who have chronic patients in this program, don't view this as trying to steal their business but be a compliment that will allow the practice to more efficiently deliver a higher level of care. And these are certainly things that I'm sure right now you've got some really smart people in both organizations trying to think through that. In terms of Humana Kindred, to me, the challenge here includes integrating Kindred into their operations and developing a way to connect Humana's members with a Kindred care team if they need an acute level of care that can be delivered at home. Or said another way, how do you intercept the patient before they go to the emergency department, which then triggers a fairly expensive cascade of services? And to me, this is going to require both heavy physician practice education. So how do you work with your partnering physician practices to educate them so that they're not sending the patient to the ED? And how do you create an after-hours triage that helps the patient figure out what's going to be the best place for them to go. The other side of that then is you also need to have fairly heavy member education provided by both Humana and the practice so that you get the patient in a mindset where if you don't feel well, if you've got CHF, you call your primary care physician first, you don't go to the ED. That sounds like a pretty heavy lift for these new entities. So what advice would you have for HFMA members as they look to compete in those markets um, that are altered by these new and coming combinations? Yeah, no, Rich, that's a, that's a great question. So as I sort of put my hospital health system or physician practice hat on, I think for hospitals and health systems and physician practices, it's all about making sure that I have convenient access both for individuals that are polychronic and those that fare well. Because obviously, both of these organizations are going to be able, if they can execute, to provide a higher level, more convenient type of service. For physician practices particularly, or even health systems that have a a Medicare shared savings program, I think about how do you partner with somebody like an Aetna CVS to provide after-hours care to help sort of short-circuit unnecessary readmissions and head those off at the pass. Because we certainly know that one of the reasons why patients go to the emergency room is that they typically don't have access or they can't get in to see their, their physician. 
And then if you think about it also from, a, from an ACO standpoint for freestanding physician practices, how is it that you can work with Aetna and Kindred to sort of develop a hospital at home model for your patients and sort of leverage that capability to help reduce the total cost of care? Then from the health plan side, I think it's how do you either, if you're large enough, emulate these capabilities so that you can compete and also sort of see similar reductions in your premium that if you can succeed, successfully do this, that this should bring about. Or if you're a smaller plan, how do you partner with them to sort of buy these capabilities from them? Well, those are some really good insights on these emerging developments in the industry affecting providers and payers. So thank you very much for joining us today on the podcast, Chad. For more information um, from HFMA on terms of news developments affecting healthcare policy and practice, check out our website at hfma.org forward slash news. This is Rich Daly. Thanks for joining us today. Wouldn't it be great to provide your staff with unlimited access to HFMA's library of online education? How about HFMA's accredited certification programs, market-leading white papers, in-depth research reports, and more? Introducing Enterprise Solutions, a group membership program designed to provide your organization's employees with cost-effective tools and resources that increase staff engagement and optimize organizational results. Get your organization engaged with Enterprise. For more information and to watch an introductory video, visit hfma.org forward slash enterprise. In October 2018, Congress passed the Support for Patients and Communities Act, which, among other things, requires that controlled substances such as opioids be prescribed electronically starting in 2021. Connecticut, New York, Maine, and Virginia already had similar laws on the books. In this segment, Nick Hutt is joined by Spencer Ehrman, Chief Medical Information Officer for Hartford HealthCare, a fully integrated health system in the Connecticut State Capitol, to talk about his organization's experience with the state law and the impact the new federal requirements will have on providers. Dr. Ehrman, thank you for joining us. It's my pleasure, Nick. What benefits can electronic prescribing bring for providers based on your experiences with Hartford HealthCare? There's a a lot of benefits. There's a lot of time saved. We did some, you know, uh, we'll say back of the napkin calculations that it took about three minutes for a provider to write a control prescription using the old system. By the time he entered in the EHR, went to the printer, got it, signed it, walked back, gave it to the patient, took about three minutes. Now it takes about 30 seconds to write a control prescription. Doesn't sound like a lot, but two and a half minutes for 4,000 providers, you know, we're talking one to 2,000 hours per month of time saved. And that's just for providers. That doesn't take into account callbacks from the pharmacy that the front desk has to answer the call, find the nurse, find the MA. So there's many thousands of hours saved and many millions of dollars saved just in time savings with this. You know, we we have not done the calculations, but we're talking five, six, seven million dollars a year in freed up time from the staff. That's probably the biggest benefit. Dr. Ehrman went on to describe the public health benefits that can result from EPCS. We've been very careful. We're monitoring our prescribing habits. We have noticed that in the past few years, we actually started with education before EBCS. We've decreased the number of controlled substances per provider by about 56%, which is an incredible number. We've decreased the number of pills per prescription by 36%. 
So we've really cut down the number of narcotics in the community without jeopardizing patient care and providing for patients who really need it. Connecticut was one of the worst states to be hit by the opioid crisis. We had patients in every one of our communities dying. We led the area in deaths per provider. We beat the national statistics, unfortunately, by almost double, where nationally something in the area of 115 people die per day. We noticed in Connecticut that the numbers were much more than that on a uh, death per 1,000 basis. So when we could decrease the number of prescriptions in the community, it made a huge difference. Almost 25% of patients on opioids who use them chronically misuse them. 10% of them develop an opioid use disorder. By decreasing the number of pills, we have the patients check in with the doctor. Instead of saying, here's two months worth of pills for your post-surgery pain, we'll give you two weeks and give us a call, let us know how you're doing, and we'll discuss if you need more. Also notice that about 80% of heroin users started with misused prescription opioids. So getting those pills off the street made a huge difference. Later in our interview, Dr. Ehrman spoke about the rapid increase in utilization of EPCS by Hartford Healthcare Physicians. So we went live with EPCS January 1 of 2018. We were prescribing more than 75% of our prescriptions by EPCS at the end of the first day. And the numbers went up and up and up. And when I checked this morning, we're averaging 98.5 to 99% of our prescriptions. There are always going to be a few prescriptions that cannot be prescribed electronically because of a complex set of instructions or they're taking it to a state that doesn't have EPCS. So we do have to print it out. But the prescription is still written in the electronic health record. It is still printed out there. So we have record of it. We know who's taking it, where it's going. So we can still keep an eye on it. Now that similar regulations have been passed nationally, what would your advice be to providers that are seeking to implement EPCS as seamlessly as possible? What we did and what I would strongly recommend is get your providers involved. Luckily, no one's going to have to have the time crunch that we had, you know, unless they wait too long. But what we did was we got a panel. We invited an open invitation to anyone who wants to be involved. And we have almost 4,000 providers in the system. We had a little over 2,000 that actively prescribed more than two controls prescriptions per week. I sent out emails to everybody and asked for volunteers. We got about 32 people who wanted to volunteer. About 18 showed up. We went over the systems. We had interviews with a few different vendors, demonstrated their systems and what the requirements were. Because to prescribe electronically, you have to use what's called a two-factor authentication. And you need to pick two out of the three. You have to be something, something that the provider knows. Usually that's a login and password. Something that you are, meaning a fingerprint, a retinal scan, a palm print, and then something that you have, which is either electronic or a hard token. Once you find your vendor, you have to pick which of these systems you want to use. We ended up going with a smartphone token, which I'll explain in a minute. And also, we have fingerprint scanners in certain locations where they're highly repetitive. For example, outpatient surgery, some EDs, we use fingerprint scanners. But almost everyone who uses EPCS outside of those locations use the smartphone. The company that we went with has a system that is seamless. 
you put your prescription into the computer, it wirelessly or through cell phone signal links to your phone and the phone gets a pop-up message right on their home screen that says, did you write this prescription? If you did, you swipe it. You don't even have to open any app. You swipe it and it's in and it's logged. The same thing works with a smartwatch. First time I did it, I use a, I have an iWatch and I got that little message on my watch saying, did you prescribe this? I swiped it and it was accepted. So once you pick your modalities, you know, if you want to use fingerprints, palm prints, fingerprints don't work if you're wearing gloves, so you have to take them off. Retinal scans work, but they're expensive. Fingerprint scanners are expensive, but everyone has a smartphone. That's why we went with it. Great thing about smartphones is that even if you don't have a Wi-Fi or cellular signal, the phone app works in its own just like a token. There's a random number generator that comes out on the phone. You enter that six or seven digits into the computer and your prescription is accepted. So it's very quick and easy. Again, it takes 30 seconds. So I would recommend getting everyone involved. We thought the providers would want to use tokens, you know, a little key fob or something that they could get the random numbers from. But found out that doctors don't always carry their keys. They would leave them you know, on the dresser. They leave them in the locker room. They put on their scrub. They always carry their phones with them. So no one wanted the key fobs, and we didn't use them. Dr. Ehrman, thanks very much for sharing your insight. Okay, thank you, Nick. Take care. Voices in Healthcare Finance is produced by the Healthcare Financial Management Association and written and hosted by me, Erica Grotto. Reporting this week was done by Rich Daly and Nick Hutt. Sound editing is by Linda Chandler. HFMA's president and CEO is Joe Pfeiffer. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your preferred podcast app, and reach out to us at podcast at hfma.org. We'd love to hear from you.